All right, well, it's a privilege now to introduce a couple of our missionary speakers. Tonight we'll hear from Stan DeLacour and John Haley. Uh, first, from Stan DeLacour, he has been a missionary for 38 years with College Church, a little over 40 in total in ministry. First, he served in Japan uh, along with his wife, uh, Faith. He served in pastoral work, teaching, and missionary care, and he will speak to us on Christ in the East. And then we'll hear from missionary John Haley, who's been serving as a college church missionary for 25 years in Spain, mainly in the areas of leadership development and mobilization. He'll be speaking to us on the witness of the whole church in Spain. So let's welcome our missionaries. Stan, please share with us. Minasan, konbawa. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, good evening. Uh, uh, I was in, I've been in Japan for quite a few years. This morning I said I was there for 38 years, and I, my wife said, no, it's 34. Um, I got carried away. It seemed like 38, if you know. <laughs> uh, I am not an expert at um, Eastern religions. I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. And um, so I'm going to share with what the Lord has showed me as, um, as we, we move on to um, maybe... Good, yes, the land of um, Christ in the East. Now, historically, we know that Thomas took the gospel from Jerusalem East to the, to the land of India. Many were told that the, the belief in Christianity took hold there very strongly. And in the early years of Christianity, monks attempt to bring the Roman Catholic faith, faith to the island nation of Japan. Japan, for a season, became a hotbed of the faith, but strong persecution against, against them by the shogun, the leaders. In the book written by a man by the name of Endo, and later became a movie, Silence, showed how strongly the Buddhist Shinto followers attacked and tried to eradicate the faithful followers of Jesus. Japan is known as the land of the rising sun. That's what Japan means, Nihon. There's been enormous efforts since the Meiji period, and particularly after the Second War, to establish or reestablish faith in Jesus into the national fiber of Japan. In 1878, a renowned educator from Massachusetts Institute at, at Amherst was uh, asked to come to, to Hokkaido to teach. His name is Dr. William Clark. He lived in Japan for just eight months. Short-term missionary. <laughs> but his Christian spirit lasts a long-lasting effect on his students and those that preceded him. Before leaving, he gave 31 of his new Christians a statement to write, a, a, a confession of Jesus. And with the message that became immortalized in, in uh, that's the Buddhist, uh, no, that's the Shintos, Sorry. <laughs> There's, there's Dr. Clark, uh, and his, his uh, slogan became well-known, Boys, be ambitious for Christ. Now, if you can see that little mark under, under his statue, it just says, Boys, be ambitious. Uh, for Christ was not put in there, but you can look closely, and someone taken a knife and scratched it in. <laughs> for Christ can't shut God up. 
We would often find national Japanese telling us that Christian faith was a Western faith, not really suited for Japan. In truth, the faith originated in the Middle East. And sure, it had grown in the early years to what we call the West, but so many of Jesus' teachings came in conflict with Western thinking. Servant leader, be humble, thinking of others, hold the elderly in high esteem, be gentle of heart, be meek. These are some things that we aren't taught in our schools or even some churches in the West. So the Japanese felt that they could just pick Christianity up and cut its roots off and put it in Japanese soil and bonsai it and it would become Japanese. See, they had a, if they could only add Jesus to their God shelf, it would be very good. The exclusiveness of Jesus was the problem. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. They went, there's got to be other ways. There isn't. The exclusiveness of Jesus was a problem. Well, let me introduce you to one who didn't think so. His name is Ken Nishiono. He came to our church building during one of the holidays, and I was working at my, in my office on the second floor. Uh, I was pastoring the, the church called the International Chapel of Saitama. There will be a test afterwards. And uh, Faith was upstairs in the mission office. And I just had an urge to go up and see her. So I went up the stairs, and there was this young man standing there at the door, and he looked rather wasted. In fact, he was under a lot of uh, pain medication because of a head injury from a motorcycle accident. But um, he told us that he wanted to know Jesus and become a believer. Now, this is very unusual for a few missionaries heard that unsolicited request. But he did come to know Christ, and he told us of his two-year search to know truth. He went to the teachers of Hinduism, of Buddhism, other Eastern religions. And one day he was walking in our neighborhood and saw a sign on the church door that said, knock and the door will open, asking you, you know the verse. <laughs> you better know the truth. And, and, then, and then come unto me, all you are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And he found out that it was from the Bible. So he went out and bought a Bible. And for two years, he read it every day underlining it, journaling on a, on a separate page, marking it up. So when he asked Christ into his life, I was a little surprised that he was a little more emotional. But after all, he'd been looking to know him for these past few years, and he was just at peace. He was going to become our pastor. He, became, he was an evangelist. He, he loved talking to children. He loved talking to senior citizens, and his Japanese was Great, he was Japanese. <laughs> My Japanese wasn't so good. And we would have an interesting time talking to each other. Uh, I threw in some Japanese words, he threw in some English words, and we, we figured out how to talk to each other this way. And I remember very vividly one day at a prayer meeting uh, before the service, he would come and we'd pray for the service. And at the time, one of our daughters was going through some very, very difficult times. And I thought, how do I tell Ken this? I, there's no way I could say that. I said, well, you know my show, let's pray. And he prayed for my daughter just the way I knew that, he, that the Lord wanted him to. And I thought, there's a man of my own heart. He knows my heart, yo. 
So we were going to have him become the pastor of our Japanese congregation. The neighborhood knew him. Uh, in fact, our little neighborhood was called Inoki Cho. And the neighborhoods called our church, the ICCS, Inoki Chapel. They gave it the name. So he went to Bible school. We helped him finance that. And, and after, I was able to go to his graduation. And I was very excited because uh, in a few weeks, he was going to come to Tokyo and, and, and be our pastor to the Japanese. But then, the next day, this triple disaster hit Japan with the earthquake and the tsunami and the nuclear disaster in Fukushima. And the Lord said, let him go. That was hard. But we had to let him go, and it was a good thing that we did. He went up there and ministered to the people who were very much hurting, who didn't really care that Jesus was the exclusiveness. They, just were, they were in need of spirit. They were hungry for God. And he had a chance to lead many to the Lord and then became a pastor there and also married a young lady named Seiko. Now they have four kids, three girls, a little boy. He's now leading in a local church there in Fukushima. Christ set him free, and he's free indeed. The exclusiveness of Jesus is no longer a problem for him. Well, Christ is in the East. He is alive and living in the hearts of many in the land of the risen sun. Please pray for Japan, pray for Ken and for his wife Seiko, and for the believers to come united together to reach the rest of Japan for the Lord. Thank you. Buenas tardes. All right. Pretty good. You did better than with the Japanese. <laughs> well, throughout our 25 years in Spain, we've observed that the average Spaniard seems to be doubly inoculated against the gospel. On the one hand, based on the less than stellar track record of the official version of Christianity that their history has given them, a great many Spaniards have unfortunately rejected every version of Christianity. And on the other hand, the secular humanism that has swept over the rest of Europe has also established itself as the worldview of choice for the educated Spaniard. Now, in the face of these two realities, communicating the gospel of Jesus to the modern Spaniard is an exceedingly difficult task, and the growth of the church has been slow. On one occasion, Kathy and I sat down for our first coffee with a young couple. We knew him some because he was our fruit vendor, but we didn't know her at all. And so she turns to me and asks, John, what do you do? And when I told her I was an evangelical pastor, she says, ah, so you're here to make converts. That was our last coffee with them. Or take the woman who is now our translator. When after a year of friendship, uh, Kathy finally shared the gospel with her, she responded, if you had told me these things a year ago, we would not be friends today. But my hunch is that things really aren't so very different here or in many other places, are they? I imagine most of us have been told sometime by somebody somewhere 
that they're just not interested. And it's not a case of not being familiar with Christianity. For many, it's a case of knowing something about Christianity and having rejected it already and thus become inoculated against it. So how do you commend the gospel to someone in an environment like that? Even in contexts such as these, I think that there are some clear and recurring patterns that give us room for hope. And I'd like to focus on one of these in the next few minutes. Some 15 years ago, Kathy and I were statistically surveying the health of churches in Spain via natural church development. And we ran across one church that was doubling in size every five years. And according to their survey results, it was exactly what we should have expected. So what, what made this church such a greenhouse in an otherwise barren land? Now, if you're familiar with the natural church development quality characteristics, you know that based on international research, any church that demonstrates an above average in, uh, level of health in all of the relevant characteristics turned out to be inevitably a growing church. So when this church that showed that kind of profile invited us to spend a weekend with them, we could hardly wait to see the church firsthand. And by the time the weekend was over, there was no doubt in our minds why their survey results were as positive as they were. But it's not like they had found some magic formula. They were just a congregation whose leaders were doing a good job of equipping the saints for ministry whose members served according to their spiritual gifts, whose ministries responded to real needs, whose members loved each other and shared authentically in small group settings, whose worship services were the highlight of the week for the majority of its members, and whose evangelistic efforts cared more about the needs of people than gaining more people for the church. And we don't have time right now to go into all the fascinating details, and, I say, the necessary caveats. But let me highlight what I believe were our two most relevant findings on the church in Spain. And these have subsequently, or even before, been validated on an international scale as well. First, we found that churches in Spain were growing, healthier churches were growing four times faster than less healthy churches. Now, the statistical model we were using tracks eight characteristics, but in essence, I like to think of it as simply a way of sampling to what extent a particular congregation is obeying everything that Christ commanded. Clearly, it's the Spirit of God who brings new life, and it's Jesus who builds his church, but he invites us into his mission to work along scripturally established lines so that the life of Christ will flourish in our congregations. Allow me to make just a couple of brief observations on 1 Corinthians 3, 7 to 8. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. Observation number one, the key actor is God. He gives life, he makes things grow. Observation two, 
Human beings, however, aren't irrelevant to the process. God uses us in the course of carrying out his work. Observation three, there are distinctive and sequential tasks. First you plant, then you water. And if we were to look at the wider context of this passage, we would see that the ministries of Paul and Apollos are representative of pioneer ministries and strengthening ministries, and both have a vital role in the one purpose of building up the church for the completion of the Great Commission. Observation four, faithfulness is required in the execution of these tasks. The result of all of this, under the sovereignty of God, are healthy churches that grow. A second key discovery in Spain was that churches that started daughter churches have not only reproduced their witness in another community, but they've also grown three times faster themselves. Consequently, we're convinced that there are few things as important as the constant multiplication of healthy churches even, and perhaps especially, in places like Spain. And I believe this goes well beyond statistics and strategy. It's a theological matter that takes us back to the question we asked at the beginning. So how do you commend the gospel in an environment, whether in Spain or here or anywhere, where a huge percentage of the population is inoculated against it? Where it's not simply a case of never having heard the gospel, but rather a case of only being marginally acquainted with it and having rejected it. People who've rejected something likely need more than just talk to change their minds about it. They need evidence. And while this line of thought can legitimately lead us to think about apologetic considerations or to reflect upon the integrity of our personal witness, perhaps in Western societies we often wind up thinking about the faith too individualistically. And if there's anything in the research I've just mentioned uh, is that it points to the importance of the corporate testimony of the body of Christ. See, God isn't merely in the business of saving souls and taking them to heaven someday. He's in the business of forming a community of grace-endowed people that together increasingly give evidence to the fact that God is building a kingdom that reflects his character. No single one of us can adequately reflect the multifaceted nature of the grace of God. And furthermore, it's, it's only in relationship with one another that many of the most convincing aspects of grace can even be seen. Leslie Newbigin has written, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I'm suggesting, he writes, that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. And in that light, Engel and Dernis, I believe, have justifiably written, God intended the church to be his message and not simply to carry it. 
And we've been privileged to document this firsthand in Spain. Those churches whose corporate life has been more thoroughly touched on every level by biblical values are more consistently seeing people one to Christ and joining the church. Under the sovereignty of God, let's never underestimate the power of the witness of an entire congregation. While God undoubtedly uses many means, many different means, I suspect that the vast majority of the time, people become convinced of the reality of the faith as they see it lived out by one member, and then another, and then another. Each of us reflecting in our unique ways and in relationship with each other, the reality of the grace of God in Christ. And that's exactly what happened with Dulos, our neighbor's ex-wife. After developing a friendship and letting her hostess on several outings, highlighting unique aspects of Catalan culture, we invited her to church. And after her first visit, she said, I had no idea it would be like that. I'm going to have to revise my ideas about what church is supposed to be. Had our congregation done anything special that morning? No. We were just being our ordinary selves as the body of Christ. And we continued being our ordinary selves as the body of Christ week after week. And Dolores, well, revised her ideas she did about church, about scripture, about herself, about Jesus. And four weeks ago, she was baptized. How might we commend the gospel in an environment where a huge percentage of the population is inoculated against it? Perhaps by something both simple and profound. By being the church and letting people see it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that when you drew us to yourself, you put us in community. And we have brothers and sisters who walk with us and encourage us and Lord, thank you that they show a skeptical world things that we can't show a skeptical world. And Lord, thank you that you do that in Spain and that you do that here and that you do that in Japan and indeed all over the world because your promise is that you will build your church and nothing can stop it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.